Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast on the first episode of 2022. So Rob, happy new year to you. Thanks, Vinny. Happy new year to you. What did, what did you do for the new year celebration? Um, that's a secret. <laughs> that's because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> that's why I thought I'd ask you this loaded question. Cool. So we are going to be uh, starting, we've, we've teased this before, but we're going to be starting our uh, series, the, what do you call it? The year in the Bible or? Uh, Reading uh, through the New Testament in the year. That's what it is. Give us the overview of, of what we want to do. So if you just listen to the podcast, no problem at all. Just listen to the podcast, but we're going to be going through Mark, Matthew, Luke, John and Acts, and then kind of working our way through the New Testament. The idea, however, also is that these podcasts supplement those of you who are doing the daily uh, Bible studies, uh, d- the devotional things that we're putting together. And if you want that daily devotional, uh, it's going to be found on the, the Determined Truth website, determinedtruth.com. On Fridays, it'll get posted for the following Monday. So it'll be five days a week, Monday through Friday, with a devotional guide to lead you through. And if you're listening to this a year from now, you know, 2023, you're in the middle of March, you can just start up now. Just start up and say, okay, cool. They're doing Mark. I'll go find the blog post from January of 2020, 2022. And there's your notes and your daily devotional guide. We're starting in Mark. Why, why aren't we starting with Matthew, Rob? Do you not like the Bible or something? Yeah, no. So great. Marcus, there's one way to say it. And it's like, well, Mark's the shortest gospel. It's kind of the easiest place to start. But reality is the real reason why we're doing it is because Mark was the first gospel written. There's, there's almost no question to that. And when we do Matthew and Luke, we're going to realize that Matthew and Luke have a copy of Mark in front of them, and they're actually using it as a template. And then what we'll do is we'll do Mark, Matthew, Luke. And then at the end of those three, we're going to go back and say, hey, let's look at this. How did Matthew use Mark and what changes did he make? And you say, changes, that's not right. No, it's okay. He's adapting it to his own audience, to his own purpose, his own agenda. And we're just going to look at that and compare it. So let's put Mark first, kind of get that as a foundation. So we can begin to look at Mark, Matthew and Luke and see how, uh, wait a minute, I remember Mark said this and kind of compare it. There's going to be, uh, you know, Mark in a sense is used as the source yeah. for Matthew and Luke for a lot. And so there, you know, this in a sense is becomes the common source material that you go to in, uh, and I would even say this the way I, I oftentimes when I'm going through the gospels, when I'm teaching it, if there's something that's maybe a little unclear mm-hmm. in maybe Matthew, especially something like the Olivet Discourse, right? There's right. so much there in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 24 and 25. I just say, hey, let's start with Mark 13, right? Because right. it's it's a little simpler. It's definitely like it's half the length. Uh, and, and so even there, it's something that we could uh, say, okay, this is the source that those guys pulled from, whether it's Luke 21 or Matthew 24, 25. So this is a great place to just start a study in the gospels. Yeah. So the thing also be aware of is, Matthew and Luke are copying from Mark and using Mark as a template. And the stories in Mark and the speeches in Mark are almost always longer in Mark. Mm -hmm. So Matthew and Luke are just simply adapting it and kind of editing out and like, well, why did he edit out? Because his readers already know Mark. I don't have to say everything that Mark said because you already know that part of the story. So when you read Matthew, you're like, okay, this doesn't make sense. It's because they already know Mark. And then the other thing would be, there are questions that that Mark brings up because Mark's readers know the answer that Matthew and Luke are answering because his readers don't know why Mark said that. And so we'll be able to compare that out. Okay. So we're not going line by line. This isn't going to be an exhaustive study. Uh, There's resources that people could go. The the idea is to get a a couple episodes, a big picture of each book. Yeah. And I've actually done a podcast before, you know, before we started up as a team 
on the Determined Truth podcast site on the Gospel of Mark. So, and I worked kind of not necessarily line by line, but chapter by chapter, verse by verse as much as possible on the Gospel of Mark. So I've done Mark, I've done a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, and I think those sermons were posted on, on the Determined Truth podcast. And I think I did half of the Gospel of John uh, before I, I stopped putting those out a couple of years ago. Okay. So they, and a good idea might be listen through these series on Mark and then go uh, through the actual chapter studies that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, po- if podcasts fit your bill a little bit better mm-hmm. and your time schedule a little bit better then you can, and they're not long episodes. They're I think 20 to 30 minutes at the most. So perfect chapter one and then work your way through. So if we're just looking at Mark, then in understanding Mark, uh, what are some of the, uh, the starting points that we want to have? What, what does Mark want us to know in terms of what's, how is he telling us how to read his book? Yeah. So one of the things that's intriguing as we now begin to research the gospels much more deeply than we ever have in the history of the church, we begin to realize that these gospels were actually really, really well written, not just the gospels, but all the books of the Bible. They were really, really well written and very carefully constructed. And one of the things that they use is we've maybe referred to it before. It's called an inclusio. They'll begin and end something with the same phrase or idea or thought. And that tells you, hey, this is my goal within this section or within the whole book. It's like so a bookend. It's like a book. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yes. What we would do with a thesis statement, they would do with an inclusio where they say it at the beginning and then they say it again at the end. And that could be within a section or within the, within a, the whole book. So one of the big keys with the gospel of Mark is chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. All right, so there you go. So Mark, and that's probably a, a title not necessarily the first verse. It's probably Mark's, this is my title, the, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark begins by saying, hey, Jesus is the son of God. Here's who he is. And then in Mark 15, verse 39, Jesus is on the cross, Mark 15, verse 39. He's on the cross and a Roman centurion. So note, it's a Roman who says it. He says, surely this man was the son of God. And there you go. There's your inclusio. Begins with son of God, ends with son of God. Now, obviously there's a, you know, a dozen verses or so left before Mark, Mark gospel ends and we'll probably get to it later, but it ends in 16 verse eight, most likely mm-hmm. as far as we have it. So there you go. One, one in 1539, he's the son of God. And now the other thing intriguing with that is there's two times that the father speaks in the gospel of Mark. One of them, you probably know, and the listeners probably know at the, at the baptism of Jesus, when he says, behold, this is my son. The second time that's Mark one verse 11 the second time is actually in Mark 9, verse 7, where Jesus on the transfiguration, he goes up on a mountain, takes Peter, Matthew, and uh, Peter, James, and John uh, with him, and uh, Jesus is in his glory, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, and there you go. So Jesus as the Son of God is the central feature of what this gospel is about. Now, one of the problems with that is what does Son of God mean? And we think son of God, typically, I remember, you know, when I was young, son of God meant that he's, he's God and son mm-hmm. of man meant that he's yep. human. It's like actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. Son of man is more of a title for his deity based on Daniel seven and son of God is a title for humanity. Uh, namely, Adam is the true son of God. So if you do the genealogies, you'll see Adam's called the son of God uh, because, you know, so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so. And then you go back, Adam beget by God. So uh, son of God is his title for this true human. Uh, so that's going to be this key thing. Well, who is Jesus? So one of the questions I usually tell people when I'm teaching the gospel, Mark, one of the questions you want to ask as you're reading the gospel is who is Jesus? Now, here's the deal. We're this, we, we call it the omniscient reader. As, as the reader, we're kind of standing over the text and we kind of know what's going on. A, because I already know the story, right? Most people reading the gospel, Mark, are familiar with the story. But B, Mark tells us in verse one of chapter one, 
This is your answer. Jesus is the son of God. Flush out a little bit more what that means. But note, the people in the story are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. So as we move to the story, watch the characters in the story try to wrestle with who is this guy. So just one quick excerpt on that. In Mark chapter four, Jesus calms the storm and the disciples are on a boat and they're, they're freaking out. We're going to die. Don't you even care if we die? And Jesus calms the storm and the disciples turn around and go, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's an example of the people in the story, whether it's the disciples or whether it's demons who already know who he is, or whether it's the, the scribes who are trying, well, who is this guy? Watch them as they wrestle with who is this Jesus character. And that'll be a big thing in the gospel of Mark. So as we look at the omniscient reader, that person knows the story. And even as we become familiar with the story as readers ourselves, we could become overly familiarized. And one of the things I think we need to catch on uh, reading Mark, especially is uh, this is a really fast paced uh, yeah. story, right? So you, you definitely have this inclusio. He's, he's saying, Hey, this is the theme of the story in terms of the son of God, um, you know, the identity of Jesus, but it's also things happen quickly. This is a, yeah. this is a, a, an action movie. The, the word immediately is used. I don't even know how many times uh, throughout the book. And, and so these are also parts of, of, you know, aspects of how Mark is wanting to teach us how to read the book and making sure that we're getting locked into that and not being overly casual about it. Right. And of course we take our own cultural assumptions and our own theological assumptions and our own church assumptions into what it means as well. So our job for you and me is going to help try to help the listener kind of figure out how to get into that first century mindset of what the first readers are trying to, what they're hearing and how they would have understood this as well, because I think we have some of these cultural assumptions that are not actually that um, good. And even as you say, it, who is it about, you know, what is, what is the book about? Obviously the Sunday school answer is always going to be Jesus, right? Yeah. But I think, especially in our, uh, you know, in our Protestant circles, and especially depending on where you come from, uh, you know, I, I'm in a camp that we spend a lot of time, you know, looking at Paul and, and some of those later New Testament books. We oftentimes don't know what to do with the gospels, right? It, you know, we know what to do with them when it's Christmas. We know that yeah. we're going to hang out in Luke. We know yeah. that at Easter and at Passion Week, we're going to be hanging out, you know, in those uh, parts of the story in the gospels, but we don't know what to do with everything else. Right. And the thing is like, there was a point to writing everything else. We could have just yeah. dropped into the passion story, but there's a reason why everything else is there as well. Yes. And when we get to the gospel of Matthew, we're going to really start to point that mm -hmm. out. And then Luke too, because if it's one of those, Jesus came to be my savior things, then why are there so many stories about him doing miracles and healings and teachings and everything else? If we want to know what the teachings are for the church today, we go to Paul. Mm -hmm. So Oh, Jesus came to tell us about him being the savior. It's like, there's something deeper going on, much more significant going on. Yeah. It's like, yeah. we don't know what to, we don't know how to read the story unless there's the yeah. imperative there. Like, yeah. okay, we can read this because do this. Okay. I got that. Yeah, We're very exactly. checklist uh, oriented people. Right. And that's, and they're telling a story and we got to understand the story uh, there. So let's also know Mark's readers also know the story too. So Mark's mm -hmm. readers are already omniscient. They kind of have this understanding of the story. Mark's going to say things like uh, in Mark chapter one, Verse 14, it says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. And it's like, well, what, what do you mean? When did this happen? <laughs> yeah. What, John taken into custody. What are you so obviously his readers know that John the Baptist was arrested. Mm -hmm. So that they already know that story. So you can see again that Mark's talking, uh, telling a story that his readers already know something about and trying to fill in some details for them and help them understand things. 
so we just need to make sure that as we're launching and especially to the new Testament, and if this was indeed the first gospel that was written, which like almost no one disputes, right? It doesn't matter yeah. if you're a critical or a conservative scholar, like everyone agrees that this is the first gospel that was uh, written. Yeah. It's, it's important to recognize that the, um, the new Testament just doesn't appear out of nowhere. It's not, it's not like Genesis where you just have this origin book. There's something that happened before it, uh, it you know, and, and, it's not like you have the, you know, God bless the Gideons, but the, but the little new Testament pocket Bibles, like it, that's not our Bible. We can't just start with that. It's right. connected to something else. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot understand the new Testament story without understanding the old Testament story from which it came. So you can't have this new Testament and Psalms like, Oh, that's all great. You know, but that can't be your Bible because it's not complete. And so when you open up the gospel of Mark, it's going to begin. Now, if, if one, one is a title, then the first verse of the Bible of, in the Gospel of Mark is verse 2, which is a quote from the book of Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus. So Mark begins by quoting the Old Testament. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Mm -hmm. That's Luke begins by dozens of sayings of this might be fulfilled. The Gospel of John begins within the beginning, which mm -hmm. is a quote from Genesis. So you realize that you're in the middle of a story. And if you just jump in in the Gospel, in the gospel stories with the Jesus part, and that's certainly the best place to go for somebody that doesn't know the story very well, you're going to miss something unless you find out what that Old Testament context is, what's, what's going on. So that's going to be one of the keys. And so we're going to be probably, I'll kind of give you a, a reader's digest of the significant nuggets right now. But note, if you're listening, you're going to hear this over and over and over again, because you just, no matter what book we're in, whether it's Romans or obviously the book of Revelation, unless you know this ultimate narrative or the biblical narrative, yeah, you're going to have trouble. The Bible begins with as a story in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve in a garden or God creating humanity in a garden to be his image bearers. And that story is going to be the story of coming into, coming into God's garden presence. And people actually kind of get what, what Adam and Eve were not created in the garden. Mm -hmm. It says Adam was fashioned outside the garden. And then God brought the man whom he made into the garden. So the idea is the gardens where God's presence is. So they're brought into his presence then they sin and they expels them from the garden. Right. And he even puts this, you know, cherubim, to guard the entrance so no one can get into the, into the garden presence of God. So in the presence and then expelled. Then you get to Genesis 12 where Adam is, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham is called. And Abraham, come and go to where I show you, Genesis 12, uh, and leave where you've come from and go to where I show you. And then, Adam, and then what does Abraham and his descendants do? Well, several hundred years later, they leave and go to Egypt. So they come in and, and they go. Then Moses and the Israelites, they leave Egypt and they enter into this promised land. And this land the key with the land is that this is where God's going to dwell, right? Because that's that coming in is where God is. Going out is being expelled from his presence. Uh, Moses and the Israelites make a covenant with God. That covenant is going to be, if you do what I say, I'm going to bring you into my presence and you'll be blessed. If you don't do what I say, well, you're going to make a mockery of my name and I'm going to have to send you out of my presence. And that we call that the expulsion or the, the exile. It's being sent, being sent away. And guess what happens? The Israelites come into the land, but they don't completely obey and they get expelled or they get sent into exile. And so the Bible is a story of coming into God's presence and then getting exiled and sent, being sent out. And the Old Testament story ends with them being out of the land. They got sent out at the end of the Old Testament story. Now, this is kind of this, this moment of crisis for, for the Old Testament Israelites. This moment of crisis is that, well, God made this covenant with us. He gave us this land. And he says, he's the supreme God. He's the most powerful God above them all. He's the God above all gods. And yet the Babylonians conquered us. And if the Babylonians conquered us, then their God must be bigger than our God. It must be stronger, more powerful than our God because 
our God laid down. So Molech, Marduk, the gods of the ancient nations must be bigger than our God. So when they go off into exile, especially in the Babylonian exile being expelled, it's this moment of crisis going, um, is any of this legit? I mean, are we even sure that our God is the one who appeared to Abraham and that he really is the God he says that he is and all those kind of things there. So what happens then is what we call maybe the latter prophets come along and say, it's okay. God allowed this to happen. In fact, God actually caused it to happen. He brought the Assyrians and then God brought the Babylonians in to conquer you. And our God really is in control and he will bring you back to the land. He'll restore you this, the restoration, this hope of restoration. He'll restore it. And when he restores you to the land, it'll be better than it was before, right? Uh, Haggai says, Haggai 2.9 says, the latter glory will be greater than the former. This is going to be even, this is going to be greater. Now you have this one odd thing at the end of Malachi that says that before God comes back, uh, he'll send, he'll send Elijah who will go and prepare the way for him. So the Israelites are expecting this restoration to the land. They're expecting Elijah to come first and then the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't have to be an individual person. So there's all kinds of thoughts out there in the Jewish world at this time as to what it was like. Now, some of you might be going, well, wait a minute. Don't the gospel stories open with them in the land? I mean, they're, they're Jewish people and they, they kind of live in the land. And the answer is, yeah, they've come back. So uh, various creeds uh, were issued by various, edicts were issued by various kings that allowed them to come back to the land. But the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day and the Jewish dialogue of his day was, are we really back in the land? Is this really the restoration or not? So A, not all of them came back. A lot of them are still living around the world. That's why when Paul goes off on his journeys, there's Jews kind of all over the world. They didn't all come back. And secondly, they came back, but this isn't what we were told. We were told that when we come back, David's going to be the king over us. It's going to be this great restoration. It's going to be better than what it was like before. And Rome's in power. And we're, we're subject to Rome. And of course, before Rome was in power, the Greeks were in power and we were subject to them. And before them, the Persians and the Medes were in power. Ezra and Nehemiah both say that they've come back to the land, but we're slaves in it. And so there's your indications in both Ezra and Nehemiah that, yeah, we've come back, but this isn't the restoration because we're still slaves. And we'll see in Luke chapter four, when we get to the gospel, Luke, this great promise of restoration. So this is the story that we're in. They're waiting for the restoration. They're waiting for this return from exile. They're waiting for God to act and renew his covenant people, restore his king on the throne and make us free. Now, as we go further, we'll talk about this. They're also expecting, however, that this is going to be a kingdom for us and not for them. And that'll be obviously important to flush out. So that's kind of the story that we're walking into. Yeah, And this is, you know, when Mark quotes from Isaiah 40, I mean, Isaiah 40 through 66, this is literally those sorts of things that it's dealing with. It's all dealing with that, uh, the people of God being restored, right? Yeah, this is, it's so significant to understand Isaiah, especially, and the first, you know, 39 chapters, then chapter 40 through 66, and what's going on in chapter 40, because Mark quotes chapter 40, verse three, mm-hmm. in verses two and three. Now, Mark's going to attribute this quote. Let me go ahead and read it. It says, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, this is verse two of Mark chapter one, behold, I'll send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord make its path straight. Now, if you look at this carefully, you'll note that only verse three is actually quoting the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Verse two is a quote from Malachi with actually a little mix of Exodus 23 in mm-hmm. there also. Now, the first thing about that is not uncommon at all to, 
to paste two or three verses together and maybe a hybrid the, quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hybrid quote and attribute to the one person. And, and Isaiah is the most prominent. He's going to get the nod over Malachi. So it, it's a combination of Isaiah and Malachi and, and a little bit of Exodus. And so to know what's happening in Isaiah and to know what's happening in Malachi is extremely important to understand what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me give you an example of why this is so important without telling you what the answer is first. Go to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to re- go ahead and read it for those of you who are listening online. But um, uh, Vinny, let's turn to Mark 11. And as you read the story of the Gospel of Mark, one thing to note, Mark's going to have a geographical uh, objectives where he's going to be up in Galilee almost the entire time. He never travels to Jerusalem. When you get to chapter 11, this is his first time ever in Jerusalem. Obviously, we read Matthew, Luke, and John, and we're like, mm-hmm. oh, he's been in Jerusalem a whole bunch of times, but not if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Mark. So here he, he enters Jerusalem for the very first time, uh, and here's what happens. And of course, it begins with the triumphal entry, which most of you know the story, that he rides in the back of a donkey, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then verse 11 says this, Mark 11, verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, and that, that's the first time he's ever been there. Oh, awesome, right? And he came into the temple. Like, oh, wow, awesome. And after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. And you're like, what? how anticlimactic is that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? I mean, if you're going to tell us that he went into Jerusalem and then he went into the temple, then what did he see? It says he looked around like, okay, then what did he see? Why are you telling me that he looked around if you're not going to tell me what he saw? And then he left and it's like, Whoa, what's going on? And when we get there, we'll discuss this in, uh, either next week or the week after uh, what's going on in Mark chapter 11. But now if we go back to Malachi and recognize the quote of Mark chapter 1, verse 2, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 2 is quoting Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So right before Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 3. So here's what it says. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you see will suddenly come into his temple. Now, if you listen to that carefully, you'll note the first part of Malachi 3, verse 1 is what Mark quotes. Mm-hmm. So Mark says, Before, uh, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Right? And this is that Elijah character that he talks about in, in Malachi chapter 4. Right? I'll, I'll send my messenger. Okay. That's good. And he will clear the way before me. And then Mark stops quoting Malachi and starts quoting Isaiah now. So what Mark leaves out is the next part of, Ma- of Malachi chapter three, verse one, which says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Now, let me pause for a second, because the biblical authors, they don't have chapters and verses and they don't have Bibles handy like we do. So they quote a reference from a, a story. Let's say um, the father threw a banquet for a son. All right, as soon as I say the father threw a banquet for a son, you know, I'm talking Luke about the 15. parable, yeah. Luke 15, the parable mm-hmm. of the prodigal son. And you now know the whole story. Now, I don't have to quote the whole story to bring that whole story to your mind. And that's what biblical writers do. They quote one verse from a story, from a section, and the whole, the whole episode's in your mind because you've heard it, right? Remember, this is not something you've read. You've heard before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus yeah, was yeah. making those words up on the cross. Yeah, he's quoting uh, Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. And he's quoting the whole Psalm, mm-hmm. even though he only quotes the very first verse mm-hmm. when, when he does that. So when he quotes the very beginning of Malachi 3, Mark's readers have been trained to know, oh, let's include the whole of, Mark, uh, chapter, of Malachi chapter 3. And so the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. So when 11.11 says he went into Jerusalem and he went into the temple, you're like, that's what we've been waiting for since the very first time you quoted Malachi. We knew that the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem and then go into the temple. 
But why don't you tell us what he saw, right? Now, the next thing to notice, well, you got to keep reading in Malachi first. All right, so skip down now to verse two and note what he says. What he says. So let me read the rest of verse one. So the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look at verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming? Mm-hmm. And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller soap. Oh, his coming isn't the good news that we thought. Remember, mm-hmm. Mark says this is the good news of Jesus' coming. But Malachi's like, but it's not all good news. And so when we get to Mark 11, verse 11, we'll bring that into more context. Like, oh, so here's this larger context. First thing that we're doing is the Lord's going to come. And he's going to come into his temple, but it'll be like a refiner's fire. And I'm not sure this is going to be all good news for everybody. Isaiah chapter 40 now that Mark also quotes, and this is the main passage that he quotes, is actually, and I won't have time to kind of go into all the detail of it, but Isaiah 1 through 39 is kind of, hey, this is what happened, and you didn't obey the Lord, and the Lord told you that if you didn't obey, you'd be in trouble, and you're supposed to be his, his witnesses. You are my witnesses, you know, says the Lord, and you didn't do it. And so God's going to bring the Assyrian Empire to come in and punish the northern kingdom of Israel. It's going to be really bad, and I'm sorry, but that's just what Isaiah is announcing this bad news of, of God's impending judgment. But then Isaiah includes the good news. Oh, but it won't all be bad news because when the time has come and you've, you've kind of filled up your, your judgment, your time of judgment. And it says, so when you fill up your time of judgment, Isaiah 40 verse one says, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Oh, that's like a total tr- change because Isaiah 1 through 39 is mostly mm-hmm. doom, 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 doom. And then comfort, oh, comfort my people. Verse two, speak kindly to Jerusalem. It's like, what a change. Like, what's going on? Uh, and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Oh, God's punishment is completed. We're done. And now verse three, which Mark quotes, mm-hmm. is what Isaiah 40 verse three says. And it says, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Ah, now the desert is the east. It's the Arabian desert. And remember the Israelites were taken captive in what we call modern day Iraq, Iran, Iraq. That's east. They've gone into exile in the desert. Now the book of Ezekiel also says that when the Israelites were sent into exile, that God went with them. Ezekiel one opens up with a vision of God appearing to Ezekiel. And he appears to Ezekiel in Babylon. God's not in Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. I think it's Ezekiel 14, where it says God has left also. So the return from exile is not only them coming back to the land, and as we get into more detail, we'll, we'll explain, and God establishing a king in Jerusalem like David, and it'll be greater than it was before, but according to Isaiah and Malachi, it's also going to be the Lord coming back. Well, and it's not just Lord, it's Yahweh. Like yeah, that's yeah, literally yeah. what's said, said there. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Right. And for you and me, I don't think there's an issue, but I know mm-hmm. some people do, do make this issue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Yahweh. It's the Yahweh... It's the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple, right? It's God's temple presence that Adam and Eve saw and were expelled from. That's why the gospel of John says, we beheld his glory. Ah, that glorious presence of God is what's coming back. So it's prepare a way for the Lord and he's coming from the East. And there you go. He's, and that's why when Jesus rides the donkey from Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, from Bethany up to up the Kidron Valley and then up the hill into Jerusalem, he's coming from the East. Because he's the Lord coming back to his temple. 
but it's not actually all good news for everybody. So mm-hmm. we'll have to kind of explore that also. So there's your story. So when you read Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, you kind of have to shout this out. The Lord's coming back. This is what we've been waiting for. Hallelujah. This is this, is this great moment of liberation. Well, and Mark doesn't leave this ambiguous either. He starts off with this very bold proclamation. You know, as you said, uh, you said a couple things. First off, chapter and verse divisions were not something originally written by the biblical writers. Those are something created like 500 years ago by scholars in Europe to help us. So if, uh, let's see, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God is the title, because, you know, he wouldn't say the gospel according to Mark. Then his first verse is quoting this hybrid quote of Malachi and Isaiah. And he says, hey, you know, behold, I'm going to send my messenger who's going to prepare your way. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. And what is he crying? Prepare the way for Yahweh, make his path straight. And then immediately after this, Mark says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Oh, so John is the messenger who's going to be sent. And yeah. and he talks about how John is baptizing. And, and then it says, oh, in those days, Jesus came. So now you have your identification of these two players saying, John, the Baptist is his messenger. And guess what? Jesus is Yahweh. Yes. And, and I think it's too easy for most evangelicals to land there and stop there. That's what we pointed out. Because it's way that more Son of that. God means humanity. Yes. And of course, so, so he's announcing his deity because he is Yahweh coming back to the land. But he's also the son of God, meaning the true human, the, the, mm-hmm. the true mm-hmm. image bearing human that Adam and Eve were supposed to be. And so there's, there's both of this and we have to wrestle with that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, th- I just think Mark one, not even the whole chapter, but that first introductory section, because then you have Jesus announcing what he's actually doing. Right. Yes. <laughs> and it is so clear. Hey, like, Hey, the time is fulfilled yes. because he's proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the good news. Yes. And the time is fulfilled. Everything we've been waiting for. That's what's happening now. This it's here. Repent and believe that this, this is an incredible proclamation of God's kingdom being restored. Mm-hmm. So while Mark is introducing us and identifying that Yahweh has come in Jesus, that's not the whole point. It's not, this isn't just one of those evangelical things that we look at is to find the deity of Jesus. It's, it's there, but that's not the point. Um, and, and it's not merely a story about saying, you know, how to go to heaven when we die. Like, no. like it's, it's way more than what's happening here. It's not just, Hey, and he's saving you from your sins. You are being saved from your sins, repent and believe, but it's, that's, that's not what the whole story is just about. No, the story is about the King coming into his land and coming to his people to restore his kingdom on the earth in the midst of the kingdoms, most notably the kingdom of Rome. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create conflict. That's not going to go over well because the Kings aren't going to like, well, we're just going to step out of the way and let you take over where you belong. So Jesus is the king. The kingdom has come. That's why we pray thy kingdom come because we realize, well, it's come, but it's not all here yet because, well, one essence of the kingdom is God's presence amongst us. And so as Christians in the New Testament era, we realize the Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts. So that part of the kingdom is already here because God dwells with us. But we also know that we don't dwell fully in the presence of God and there's sin there's death, there's pain, there's suffering, there's war, there's famines, there's, there's injustice. So we know it hasn't come fully. So you have to reckon with the coming of the kingdom having started and what that means and how we walk in the midst of that now. And so to understand the Jesus story is critical. You can't read Paul 
and preach sermons on do this and don't do this mm -hmm. without putting into this context of the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. Yeah. And even so much you mentioned, I remember us talking about that in our, our last interview with David Crump, because uh, in his book, he talks a lot about the already, but not yet yes. uh, in terms of how the kingdom goes. So you could even refer back to, to that last interview we did with David Crump, Crump and he, he mentions that in terms of a, you know, what it means for an from an application standpoint. And then also just as a, you know, to highlight works that you've already done. And if, if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously are on board with <laughs> the contributions Rob has, Rob has made, but in your book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, or as the first uh, edition read, it was understanding eschatology and why it matters, right? right? And, and it's because this stuff actually matters, which it's why critical. would we talk about eschatology? We're not talking about revelation, but I think we'll, right. we'll, we'll dialogue about that. In a, yeah. in a and and eschatology means the study of the end times. And it absolutely is critical because the end times have begun with Jesus and the kingdom. And if we don't understand what the kingdom is, I've said this before, what's the most common topic of Jesus? And the answer is the kingdom of God. And yet most Christians, they have no concept what the kingdom of God really is. They think of it as something future when it comes down, you know, when we go to heaven, it's like, no, it's already here. And it's not us going there. It's it, it's it coming here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth mm -hmm. as it is in heaven. So that's that's the critical missing link so often in evangelical this dialogue. So as we're, you know, even introducing this topic and for many of our listeners, the idea of kingdom is this thing that we're just anticipating in the future. Um, it, it's, it's when Jesus comes, you know, in the end to establish a kingdom in, you know, yeah, he kind of introduced that thing years ago, but then he took it away or something like that. How, how do we look at the concept of kingdom uh, in terms of what Jesus actually established and didn't establish and then took away for, with him, but actually uh, was, was planting root for his uh, followers to continue to cult cultivating. Yeah. And let's, let's note this, cause that's a great question then that you've already cited Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, which is the first words of Jesus in the mm -hmm. gospel of Mark. And his answer is the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That, those are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. And the answer is, hey, look, the time's fulfilled. Kingdom of God's at hand. And you need to repent and believe because it's, it's, it's already begun. So this is the context now. The whole story is wrapped up in the context of the kingdom of God's becoming in Jesus, the fulfilling of everything that we heard about in the Old Testament story, etc. And so now how do we wrap with this? Well, understand this. The, God, the disciples themselves were still thinking of a kingdom on earth for Jewish people in Jerusalem and everybody else gets expelled out. They're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And the bad guys have been in power since Egypt 2000 years ago, when we went into Egypt and make, became slaves there in the book of Exodus story it tells us there. So we're looking forward to, if Jesus really is the Christ and, and, and like the disciples are thinking, we're kind of on the inside. This is going to be great. You know, this is going to be awesome. Now remember the Mark's first 10 chapters, he's up in Galilee. And so all of a sudden now he's like, okay, let's go to Jerusalem in Mark eight. And they don't actually get there till chapter 11. As they're on their way to Jerusalem, the disciples are probably thinking, okay, this is when he becomes the King. And when we go to, and so uh, James and John come up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, um, I know we're going to Jerusalem. This is going to be so awesome. When we get there, can we sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus is like, um, you don't really know what you're asking. Do you? Mm -hmm. And the disciples, oh, yeah, we, we totally get it. He's like, well, can you drink the cup that I drink? Oh, absolutely. Well, the word drink, of course, is often a, a metaphor for the suffering that I'm going to mm -hmm. undergo. Can you, the people sitting on his right and on his left when he's established to be the king, 
are the thieves on the cross. Mm-hmm. So do you really know what you're asking for? Because you're asking to be crucified alongside me. And they don't get this. But it shows how they're thinking of this kingdom in this totally mundane sense of this worldly kingdom that does power the way everybody else does power. And you're in Jerusalem and we're on your right and on your left. We're on the inside. This is great. We expel everybody else. The gospel pronouncement is the kingdom of God's here. Repent and believe. So the significance of that is apparently it's available to anybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just simply say, and the Jewish people need to repent and believe or become Jewish and then repent and believe, which we know Paul's going to have this controversy in his churches, mm-hmm. right? We have to become Jewish first. It's just repent and believe. And so when a Roman says, I'm repenting, okay, come on. When a tax collector says, I'm going to rep- come on in. And he's welcoming in the people that you're not supposed to be welcoming in because we're the in and they're the out. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way the leadership kind of worked. And so all of a sudden realize the kingdom is for everybody. So what you see happening is, first off, the kingdom is for everyone. It's for anyone, including the nations, including the Romans, which is going to cause some problems for the, the disciples and the early Christians and the Pharisees of, and scribes, of course, also. But the next thing to note is that the way Jesus does kingdom is then going to be contrasted with the way the world does kingdom. And this is mm-hmm. so critical because I think Christians have totally got this wrong. We dealt with this like over several episodes when we did that Christian nationalism section there back a couple months ago. We think of kingdom of God as something of power, and that's the way the world does kingdom. It's power, it's wealth, it's military might, it's, it's having dominance over the other one, stepping on the little guy. This is simply the way kingdoms work. And if we want to have this noble idea that our country's not like that, well, we need to get beyond that because our country's like that too. As great a country as it might be, it's still going to step on the little guy when it needs to step on the little guy. And we're still going to keep the people outside of power, outside of power, so we can maintain our power base. That's kind of been the problem with you know white supremacy. and all. We have power, and we don't know if we want them in, so we're not going to give women the vote because mm-hmm. we don't want to lose our power. Of course you should give women the vote. Jesus comes along and says, this is not the way I do kingdom. And the disciples say, well, when we get to Jerusalem, can we, can we sit on your right and on your left? And just like, look, Mark chapter 10, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, uh, verse 42. Jesus says, uh, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles um, lorded over those uh, that they're in authority over and their great men exercise authority over them. But verse 43, not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of a sudden you're realizing, whoa, wait a minute. The way kingdom works is different. We call this the upside down gospel, but Mm -hmm. it's also the upside down kingdom. And the way Jesus' kingdom is established is through the cross. The cross has always been the central focus from the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of the gospel story to the end. It's always been the focus. And they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. And it's this cruciform kind of love for the sake. That's the way my kingdom works. Cruciform love for the sake of the other and radically contrasted with the way the kingdoms of the world do power. Where are we going to go from here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much yeah. good stuff there. Yeah. yeah. When we get to the gospel of Luke, we'll save Luke's version of the story for, for then, but note how Luke frames this particular context where the disciples saying, Hey, can we get into Jerusalem? Can we find your right and on your left? Now, who's our greatest. And then Luke's going to quote this passage in a radically different context. It's going to be really eye-opening. Go, Whoa how Luke has appropriated this to his own, his own objectives. It's fascinating. So obviously the idea of kingdom is going to uh, 
imply king. And and I think you even uh, said that the simplest way, it was a previous episode we did. You said the simplest way to describe the gospel is Jesus is Lord, right? Which uh, that's a treasonous statement. This is a, you know, there's so much crossover in terms of what we're seeing, even in Mark with terminology, with phraseology and how it would have been appropriated to Roman rulers and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not merely that Jesus is setting up this separate kingdom, but he's ruling over things and, and things you can see things you can't see. And one of the things that we see a lot in Mark is that uh, he, he seems his, his biggest beef is not with the ruling authorities of the world, but with the spiritual authorities of the world. And so he's doing things like casting out demons. How is this significant? Yeah, I guess I'd clarify that by saying it's the spiritual authorities of the world that are working through the political authorities of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are that the way they do kingdom is not the way I do kingdom, and that the king of their kingdom or the lord of their kingdom is actually going to be the devil. So that's why in the Gospel of Mark, so often Jesus is casting out demons because there's your enemy. That's who the real enemy is. It's not the Roman, and you think it is, but it's not. And of course, I understand why you think it is, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But it's not. The enemy actually is the devil. So you're going to see this confrontation with Jesus and the devil. So that when you see in uh, Mark chapter three, he says, I had to come into his home and and plunder the strong man and bind him. I had to bind the strong man so that I could loose everyone else and and free you. You've been under the power of the devil and have been influenced by him and he's the enemy. And so it's this, it's this clash of kingdoms. And obviously the gospel, the book of revelation Mm -hmm. puts this clash of kingdoms in this most incredible context where there's a dragon who's chasing a woman and the woman is God's people, the people of God, the dragon is Satan. And what's the dragon do? He goes and empowers two beasts. And who are the beasts? The political powers of the world. You go, oh, I thought my government was good. Well, your government might be good, but always going to be qualified because in some context, Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. Remember in that when Jesus was being tempted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he's being tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what Satan was offering the the Adam and Eve in the garden was like, God knows that if you eat this, you'll be like him. You're going to be the king and not him. The difference in the garden was, and this really plays into the gospels too. The difference is going to be at whose behest are you going to become kings at the behest of Satan? Jesus, are you going to bow down and worship me and I'll make you king or at the behest of the father? Are you going to submit to the father's will and become the king through the father's will? Then the problem with the father's will is that it's the way of suffering. So Jesus is truly tempted because he's like, I know what's before me. If I bow down and worship you, you're just going to give them to me. This is going to be awesome. I can forego suffering. And so often we see this in Christian theology too, right? Well, we find ways to forego suffering. Yet the way the kingdom is established is by us carrying our crosses also like Jesus did and following him. And in doing so, we defeat the powers of the world. So it's the kingdoms of the world and the way they do power versus the kingdom of God, the way he does power. And then what the kingdom of God looks like versus what the kingdoms of the world look like. That'd be critical. Okay. You know, there's even a a direct application that we're not going to want to completely touch. And I think we kind of already touched it in our Christian nationalism series, but even there, the the Christian in America today might even think, oh, the, the enemy is the person who doesn't vote like me, the, the, the ruling yeah. opposite wow. party. It, whereas it's my so party, yeah, it's uh, sadly it, true. Isn't yeah. It? My party obviously has God's favor where it's like, no political parties are not of the kingdom of God no. <laughs> by, by definition. They're not the kingdom of God. Therefore right. it's not like a, 
an enclave of it. It's those are both opposed to the kingdom of God. And so that's not it. Yeah. If I can add this anecdote and, and there'll be the tragedy of that is the mission of God's people is to be my witnesses. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, Isaiah 43. Mm-hmm. You're you're supposed to be my witnesses. And the way we witness to Christ is, well, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. They're going to know you're my disciple if you do what I did. And that is, I took up my cross and died for them. Now you take up your cross and die for them also. And when, when we lambaste somebody because of their political party, because of some of their religious views, they're, they're Muslims or whatever, the Taliban or they're, for, or they're, they're Chinese or the Russians or uh, you know, the enemies of our state, or we lambaste them because they're liberals, or we lambaste them because of their sexual preferences, what we do is we do the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. And that is modeling sacrificial love for them. It doesn't mean we have to like them or agree with them, but we have to love them. And so you can see that the, the inherent problem within that is we're actually not fulfilling the mission that we're supposed to fulfill. Yeah. And, and even when you I mean, named off a number of organizations or parties or whatever, even for something like the Taliban, which would say that's just an evil or there's nothing redemptive about the Taliban right? <laughs> right? at all. It's just it's an evil organization that exists. You don't get a uh, get out of trouble free card from Jesus on that. No, like you love your, that's literally what it means to love your enemies. You don't yeah. get more of an enemy than the Taliban. Yeah. When have you prayed for the Taliban? When was the last time you prayed for them? Yeah. And not prayed that, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, six yeah, would point. find them and shoot them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. But pray that, yeah, that they would find redemption and mm-hmm. restoration and peace. This is what it means to pray for the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Literally praying for your enemies. Yeah. Um, so for Jesus, then I, I could just think of the polarized nature of, first century Judaism. And especially as we know, you know, we see the different various groups up there where you have, you know, Pharisees and Herodians and zealots, and you have all these different types of groups. You have tax collectors who are going to be Jews who are basically siding with the Romans and and utilizing that power to make money themselves. Like there's a ton of religious factions that you have existing in first century Judaism. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, Hey guys, like all these enemies that you think you have, and you're trying to figure out who's the right guy here to align with and all that, this is just the wrong fight. <laughs> like this isn't our ultimate, uh, our battle to fight here. It's not this. Yes. And this is where we're getting into that context of what were the Jewish people who listened to Jesus in Israel, Judea, Palestine, uh, Galilee, what were they thinking and, and what's going on and, and how Jesus is going to rub in the conflict with them. And we'll get into the, the, scribes and Pharisees a little bit more as we proceed through uh, the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and then Luke. But the first thing is this, the people of Israel have experienced oppression for 2,000 years. Their story that they've been telling over and over again is we are God's chosen people that he is going to bless, but we have been under foreign oppression since the time of Israel, since the time of Joseph back in Egyptian slavery. And we got redeemed from Egyptian slavery, but not long after that, the Assyrians came in and overpowered us, and then we fell into slavery into them. Then the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom. And then when we got liberated from the Babylonians, well, the Persians were in power. When we got liberated from them, the Greeks came in and controlled. And if you know the story of the Greeks, you know, a couple hundred years before Jesus, they one of the Greeks went in and defiled the temple and sacrificed a pig and said, you guys can't even sacrifice on this altar any longer. And you can't practice any of the Jewish customs for three years. So they've, that's what they've experienced. And then guess what? Then Rome came into power. You know, I was thinking about this even again today, Vinny. And it's really been impressing upon me the last year or more. You know, we think about like taking a vacation. I want to go to Rome someday. It's like one of the places I've never been. I'd love to go to Rome. 
my dad's family's from Italy. Obviously you got family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that'd be cool. Oh, let's go see all these great sites. But you think about these sites, they were built by slaves. Yeah. As we make this podcast now, sports gambling is legal. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's happening in California or not, but here in Arizona, because it's legal in Arizona. So it's all over all of our commercials. And one of the sports betting things is Caesars, right? Caesars Palace. Okay. And so I don't know. Have you seen these commercials with Caesar? No. Okay. So they're all over our TV and the Caesars uh, up there making, I've got this app. And if you come on my app, you can bet <laughs> sports and, and, and there are a lot. And actually the Manning families in there in Caesars palace talking with Caesar right, and they're, they're glorifying this guy. All right. Well, okay. It's a commercial. I get it. No big deal. But the reality is these were brutal, evil mm-hmm. empires that, lived off the expense of 97% of the people in the world, 60 million slaves is estimated in the Roman mm-hmm. empire in the first century. Mm-hmm. We call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And that's mm-hmm. why Paul could spread his gospel because Rome was at this time of peace. It was peace at the expense of everybody else, peace through warfare. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, the pyramids of Egypt, I want to go see them someday. Well, maybe not because slaves built them and it represents oppression. It represents the wealthy and powerful doing what they do and building these great things like these great feats of mankind. Well, it's kind of great feats of mankind, but it's, it's feats at the back, at the back of somebody else. Mm-hmm. So when you walk into the first century Jewish world, sorry, that little anecdote there, but that's what's happening. And that is, what do you mean? Rome's not our enemy for one. They've been our enemy for 2000 years. They are the enemies. It's, it's them, whoever them might be. Right. And right now it's Rome. And just comes along. no, I'm going to die for them too. And obviously, you know, we as Christians go, guys, how did they miss this? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's Genesis 12. My house will be a house of prayer for the nations. That's Isaiah 55, 55, 56, 57, 58. The whole time was that you are God's chosen people to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. You're supposed to bring the nations in. What do you... It's so easy for us to see this, but unless you can understand the oppression that they've been experiencing for 2000 years, then a, that puts in the context, a little bit of the, Hey, the King is here. Yes. I'm awesome. But the King says he's here for them also. Mm-hmm. What? No, I, I don't want that kind of kingdom. And I think if we can learn to relate to that thinking, it'll help us understand the gospel context a lot, a lot better. Yeah. That's, that's, those are the bad guys. And so just like, no, actually they're not the enemy. The enemy is actually the devil. When we're looking at this thing that Jesus is doing, you have the good guys are not good by virtue of your DNA. Michael Bird has this phrase where he's all uh, in, in terms of talking about Paul, you're in by grace, not by race. And this is, you know, as you alluded to earlier in the talk, this is something that's going to be disruptive for first century Jews, because what Jesus is teaching, like, Hey, everyone's welcome. You just got to repent. And and this is something that's disruptive to people. This is, this is actually a conflict that is going to be, you know, it's going to be a problem for people because like, wait a minute, I'm not in just because I share a lineage or a a family history to a certain guy that I could claim named Abraham. What what are you talking about here? So Jesus's message is actually extremely divisive and, and confrontational. And this is going to create conflict amongst this community. Yes. And it's still divisive today. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be because the reality is that's not the kind of King I want. Let's be honest. I don't want a King where I have to go die for that person. over there. I don't like that person over there. Let alone die. I have trouble dying for my own family members, my wife. What do mm-hmm. you mean? I have to die for them. 
No, they're, they're the ones that play the loud music in my neighborhood. They're the ones that park their car in front of my house. They're the ones that do this at my, at my work. And she's like, no, yeah, actually, I, you have to love them too. And so there's this conflict there. So it's a struggle of kingdoms, a conflict of kingdoms, and how the kingdom of the world works versus how the kingdom of God works. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, I'm the real king, and you need to submit to me as the real king. And I'll make you kings too, but you're going to be kings like me, or kings and queens like me. All right, so we've covered a lot in terms of an overview of Mark, and uh, like like we've said from the beginning, this isn't a, a verse by verse or chapter by chapter study. You go elsewhere to to learn about that, but we're giving a big picture of Mark in the background. W- is there anything else that we want our folks to look for, maybe as they wait for the next podcast and as they study and, and read through Mark in the next next week on their own? Yeah. So Mark's first big question, of course, is who is Jesus, right? And he's the son of God. And that means he's the true human. He's also going to be, as we've discussed, kind of the the king of God, the king of God's kingdom and Yahweh coming. The second thing that you think that you see in the gospel of Mark, as you do your reading through the gospel of Mark, is what does it mean to be a disciple? And discipleship is so critical to Christian living. And unfortunately, it's been left out way too much. You know, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, not make converts of all nations. And so we fail to understand what a disciple, and we've kind of already hit on it a little bit, what a disciple is. But as you read the gospel of Mark, look for the question of what, what does it mean to be a disciple? All right, everyone. Well, hey, hope you have fun. I uh, hope this was edifying to you. Read through the gospel of Mark this week. Try to do it in one sitting. I would say try to do this a couple times a week if you can, but uh, you'll find the energy and the excitement of the story really captivating and, and motivating you. Uh, and, and try to read in mind with what all the things we've discussed especially in terms of looking at Jesus and his identity. You look like you're going to say something right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, let me add to that also that if you're doing the study guide and you want to get through it, go through it also, or if you're just doing this on your own, however it might be, and you have some questions that come up from your reading or from your studying, and you want us to address those questions on the podcast, just send those questions to us either through uh, email. If you have my email or on the determinedtruth.com website, there's a contact me page and just fill out that contact me page and ask your question. What we're going to try to do is do two or three episodes every month discussing the biblical book that we're on. And then our third episode, ideally, maybe our fourth, will be we'll bring in a biblical scholar to talk about who's an expert in that in the gospel of Mark or Matthew, Luke, or John, to kind of help us really understand the gospel even more deeply. And then if we have space or whatever, we can do a Q&A session on answering some big questions that might, might have come up from your studies. Awesome. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about it. We've already had some really cool guests on, so i could really excited to see all the new people we're going to meet. So, cool. hey, hope everyone has a great first part of the new year and uh, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.